And today's khatir, I wanted to go back to one of the stories from the seerah and then look at it from the lens of both law and theology and to explain to how it's possible for the same story to be interpreted in different ways. And the goal, as usual, is always so that inshallah ta'ala we appreciate the diversity of our own scholars and to understand that this religion is beyond just one group or one opinion. You will always find the diversity. The story today, inshallah ta'ala, is actually one of the most interesting stories of the seerah. Uh, we'll summarize it. And that is in the conquest of Mecca, in the eighth year of the hijrah, our Prophet decided to attack Mecca. And he didn't explain or he didn't tell uh, the Quraysh obviously that he's attacking, he's going to surprise attack them. And he told the Sahaba last minute that we're going to be leaving. Only the core Sahaba. And he made dua to Allah that, Oh Allah, protect our plans from being exposed to the Quraysh. We don't want them to monitor. We don't want them to know. Let it be a complete surprise attack. Because if you have a surprise attack, there'll be minimal casualties, which is exactly what happened. So he made this dua to Allah. And this shows us that no matter who we are, no matter what we're doing, we have to make dua to Allah for success in our plans. So it so happened that one of the companions by the name of Hatib ibn Abi Balta'a, this person Hatib was not from the Quraysh. He had migrated to the Quraysh pre-Islam and he had formed a business partnership with one of the sub-tribes of the Quraysh. He was what is called a Halif. In our vernacular, he had a visa to live in Mecca. He's not a citizen. To be a citizen, you have to be Qurayshi. He has a visa. He has a green card status, right? He accepts Islam. He migrates, but he has to leave some of his children and his wealth. He couldn't bring them with him to Medina. Hatib participated in every single ghazwa. Ghazwat Badr, Ghazwat Uhud, the Khandaq. He has been a key player. In, in fact, the Prophet even sent him as an emissary, uh, an a, uh, envoy, an ambassador to Muqawqis in Egypt. It was Hatim whom the Prophet chose to deliver the letter to Muqawqis. So he's a well-known companion. Now, Hatib wrote a secret letter and he wanted to send it to the Quraysh. And there happened to be a lady by the name of Sarah, who was not a Muslim, she was a pagan, and she was a Qurashi, pure through and through Qurashi. Remember, this is the time where your blood counts and who you are has a lot. She's a Qurashi, she's a kafira, a pagan, and she had relatives in Medina, and she had a misfortune that she needed money. So she came to Medina to beg her relatives for some money, sadaqa, they gave her sadaqa. Hatib heard that Sarah is in town. So Hatib paid this lady Sarah, some money and said, I have a letter for you. It's top secret. Sarah did not know what's in the letter. Take this letter and give it to so-and-so, Abu Sufyan, whatever. Give it to the leaders and here's the money. And make sure you tell nobody. Only Hatib and Sarah know of this story. That's it. Nobody knows except Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So Allah sent Jibreel down. And Jibreel said, Ya Rasulullah, Hatib wrote a letter and he handed it to this lady, Sarah, and you will find her at Dhul Hulayfa. You had better catch the letter before it reaches the Quraysh. You can't outwit Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So the Prophet sent Al-Miqdad and Zubayr ibn Awam and Ali ibn Abi Talib, like core elite, like these are inner, inner circle, all Qurashi, all like this is the inner circle. 
He sent the three of them. He said, immediately, ride your horses, immediately. Get to Dhul Hulayfa. You all know Dhul Hulayfa or the Miqatis. Get to Dhul Hulayfa. You will find a caravan going back to Mecca. In the caravan, there's a lady called Sarah. Stop her and get the letter from her and bring it back to me. These were the instructions. So, the three of them marched quickly on their horses. They caught the caravan. They took Sarah out of the caravan, surrounded her. They said, hand over the letter. She said, I have no letter. So they searched the entire camel, all of her bags, and they said, we don't find it. Where's the letter? She said, I don't have any letter. Ali ibn Abi Talib said, Wallahi, neither was I lied to, nor did the one who spoke to me is known to be a liar. In other words, you have a letter. I heard the Prophet say you have a letter. The one who says this is not a liar. Neither did I hear a lie, nor is the speaker a liar. Hand the letter or else we will search you, your persona, cover to cover. We will, you understand this point, your body will be searched. And this shows us from this, our fuqaha, do I believe it or not, that when it comes to awrat and when it comes to covering and whatnot, the Muslim and the kafir have the same level for us. We are not allowed to see with lust. We're not allowed to. This was only allowed because of darura. Otherwise, they wouldn't have had to threaten and say, you'd better give it or else. In other words, there is what we call sanctity. A Muslim should not gaze upon Muslima or kafir. It doesn't matter. And of course, if there's a communal stake, then obviously if there's a national crisis, if there's a doctor, that's a separate issue. So she said, turn around. So they turned around. She took it out of her hair. It was inside of her hair. Even the mushrikas would cover their hair back then. So it was inside. It was inside her braid. So she opened her braid and handed it to them. She didn't know what's in the letter. And, you know, she was wanting some money. So she was let go. And this shows us that if a person does a crime innocently, they are not to be held liable. She did not understand how significant this treachery was. She just was told to keep it secret. So she put it in her hair braid. So Ali radiallahu anh came back. And lo and behold, the process and read it. And what was in the letter? From Hatib ibn Abi Balta'a to Abu Sufyan and others know that the Prophet is going to leave Mecca, Medina to attack and so take preparation to defend. And you know, that, uh, this is my warning to you. Okay? Khalas, he's been caught now. Umar ibn Khattab said, Ya Rasulullah, let me execute this munafiq. Let me execute this munafiq, this traitor. The Prophet said, No, call him. Call him. Called Hatib. Ya Hatib, ma hamalaka ala ma fa'alt. Why would you do this, Ya Hatib? Why would you do this, Ya Hatib? And the Prophet uh, Hatib said, Ya Rasulullah, I have no desire to return to kufr after Allah guided me to Islam. I have no raghba to return to kufr. I have no love for returning to kufr. But as you know, I am not from the Quraysh and I don't have honor amongst them. And I have my children, and I have, you know, all my property and my children over there. And I was worried that if we are being attacking them, they will protect your relatives because they're fellow Qurashi, but they're gonna take their anger out on my kids, on my family, and on my possessions. So I felt that if I sent this letter to them, they would acknowledge this favor. And I knew Allah would protect you. And because of this letter, perhaps my children would be spared. So the Prophet ﷺ said, Sadaqa Hatib. Hatib has spoken the truth. This was his reason. He didn't do it out of a loyalty to the Quraysh. He did it because he loved his children. He wanted to protect his children and he messed up. Sadaqa Hatib. 
Umar al-Khattab again said, Ya Rasulullah, let me execute him. This is a key point. We're going to come back to this. Twice Umar said, let me execute him. And the Prophet then said, Ya Umar, how do you know? Perhaps Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has looked at the people of Badr. Hatib was a Badri. Hatib participated in Badr. And has said to the people of Badr, do as you please. All of the other sins you have done shall be forgiven. How do you know the status of Hatib? Hatib has a Badri. Hatib is a person who participated in Badr. And Allah has looked upon the people of Badr. 310. 310 of the Badris. Allah has looked upon them. The highest category of Sahaba are the Ashra Mubashara. The second highest, the people of Badr. The Sahaba are 10 categories according to Ibn Hajar. The highest category, Ashra Mubashara, right under them, it is the people of Badr. The people of Badr occupy an extremely high status. This is one of the blessings, right? And so, Hatib was therefore not executed. Now, this is the summary of the story. I've gone into more detail in, in my uh, Sira series. Now, Today's khatir was not the story actually. It was about how people have interpreted this story. You understand this is a very, very deep, sensitive, politically, legally, theologically. There have been entire dissertations and entire you know, uh, research papers written about this incident. And what I want to convey to you today, there is a spectrum of opinion. The whole point of today's khatira, how can the same incident be viewed from different angles and the same incident give you contradictory rulings amongst our own ulama? We just understand this point and perhaps today I'm not even going to tell you what my opinion is. Who cares? They're great giants here. So, let's begin with the first opinion, legally speaking. From the fiqh perspective, two opinions. The first opinion, Imam Shafi'i and Imam Abu Hanifa. From this we derive... They were very clear that the jasus, what is the jasus? The spy, is not to be executed. Al Shafi'i was explicit. What more evidence do you want? He didn't just betray an Islamic state, he betrayed the Islamic state. He didn't just betray some Muslim land, he betrayed the trust of none other than the Prophet. And still he was not executed. So from this, the Shafi'i and Hanafi school derives that the Jasus is to be punished, Ta'zir, but not executed. Throw him in jail, do something, fine him. You know, of course, Ta'zir has multiple, I don't want, don't want to get too explicit, but Ta'zir is not execution. Ta'zir is not execution. So, pretty obvious from their perspective. Okay, the exact opposite opinion was derived by many in the Hanbali school and many in the Maliki school. Many because there's dissenting in all of these as usual. Usually the Hanbalis typically have a spectrum of opinion, so you should know that. So one of the positions of the Hanbali school and one of the positions of the Maliki school, you may execute the Jasus, but not as a murtad. So it's not a head punishment, it is a ta'zir. Ta'zir means that it's not head, which means it's up to the ruler. He, he can have a selection. Click down menu, A, B, C, D, E, F, G. And one of the options is execution. Okay, how did you derive the exact opposite from the other two schools? How did they do that? Very simple. Umar radiallahu an said, let me execute him. And the Prophet said, he's a Badri. Which means what? If you're not a Badri, so you get the point here, right? The reason the other, the other two madhab say is that 
the reason, so Umar radiallahu anhu said, I want this execution. And the Prophet said, how do you know Allah has, I should not translate how do you know, actually the Arabic really means that don't you know is a better way. Don't you know that Allah Azza has looked upon the people of Badr and has said, do whatever you please, you shall be forgiven. So the Prophet used a specific excuse to eliminate this punishment from Hatib. He didn't say to Umar al-Khattab, Ya Umar, we don't execute Jasus. Rather he said, Hatib is a Badri. So the other two madhabs derived that Umar's request and the somewhat tacit approval, somewhat tacit, approval that the Prophet did not say, no, 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 we don't execute. Rather, he gave another excuse. Now you see here, a legal ikhtilaf right here, right? Okay, let's move on because there's even more controversy. Now we get to the even bigger issue of controversy, which is quite sensitive and Allah mustan, these things need to be said. Uh, I'll try my best to not be too explicit because I want you to think. I don't want you to become yani, emotionally involved, but to think and use your yani, intel that Allah has blessed you with to reason through and to understand. Some of the theologians, now we get to theology, now we get to uh, aqidah. Some of the scholars of aqidah, dare I say, the majority of them have used this incident to derive another fact. And that is, if you see somebody commit an action of kufr, don't pronounce kufr on him until you verify and find out. An action of kufr does not become kufr until you verify and find out. Because the Prophet ﷺ, I mean, what can be greater if you like kufr than to betray the Prophet ﷺ? What can be something that you literally betraying his trust? You are literally telling the Quraysh, that the Prophet is about to attack. What more betrayal to Allah and his deen can you have than this? And yet still, the Prophet said, call him. And accepted an excuse. So the majority of fuqaha and theologians have said, kufr that is done via an action. Let me rephrase that. The majority have said, kufr is in the heart. And you need to verify what is in the heart. And the action should not cause you to think that the heart is feeling kufr until you verify. Don't base it on an action. When a person is a Muslim and he says he's a Muslim, then no matter what that person does, find an excuse. Get some way out. And don't say he's a kafir until you verify that he actually meant to do this. Okay? This is the mainstream position. There is another uh, position which uh, perhaps I'm more sympathetic to. I'll, I'll let that away, inshallah. That's Ibn Taymiyyah in this regard. Ibn Taymiyyah and others, they argued that not every action of kufr necessitates kufr. Some of them do. And helping a dawla kafira against the Muslim ummah is one of those ambiguous. Helping a foreign entity against the Muslim Khalifa against what not, it's ambiguous, he said. Ibn Taymiyyah says, this is his opinion. If a person does so for the sake of this dunya, to get money, to protect his family, for whatever, then this is a major sin, it is not kufr. This is Ibn Taymiyyah's position. And if a person does so, in, because he actually wants the enemies to succeed over the Muslims, then this is kufr akbar. You cannot be a Muslim according to Ibn Taymiyyah if you want an enemy to succeed over 
the Muslim civilization. Okay, and that is a middle position from this regard. Then you have the other side, which is the most hard line. Let's just say there was a movement in 17th century Arabia that was against the Ottoman Empire. And this movement had its version of preaching Tawheed and preaching what is shirk and what not. And they had a very hard line stance about this notion of allying with non-Muslims. And they made this a fundamental core of their theology. They called it wala wal bara. And this is very common in our vernacular. We hear it a lot, lectures about this. Fact of the matter is that this movement popularized the notion of wala and bara. Now, the founder of this uh, movement wrote a book called That Which Repels Islam, Nawaqid al-Islam. Point number eight, he said, whoever allies with the kuffar against the Muslims becomes a murtad. No ifs, ands, or buts. Unconditional. Whoever allies with outer people against our people automatically becomes kufr akbar. The action is kufr akbar. And we consider this person to be non-Muslim. And of course, this particular movement, who do they mean when they say non-Muslim? They meant the Ottoman Empire actually, right? So any tribe that allied with the Ottomans against them, they consider them to be halal dam murtad kafir. And so that's how they expanded their territory. So they applied this ruling over here. And if you doubted that that tribe was a kafir, you became kafir as well. Now, oh scholars of this movement, how do you interpret the story of Hatib? Oh scholars of this movement, you are all reading the Quran and Sirah. You are all scholars of Hadith as well. You have the story of Hatib in Sahih Bukhari, Sahih Muslim. You have the story of Hatib in every book of Sirah. How could you not see this story? Look here how the same incident can be understood differently. They said the story of Hatib is the strongest evidence that the one who allies with the kuffar becomes a kafir. How so? Because they said, Hatib said, I knew that Allah would protect you. So his iman that Allah would protect because it was the Prophet is a special and unique instance that only Hatib can use. No other person can use this. And the fact that the Prophet said Hatib is speaking the truth. And who else is going to know what is inside Hatib's qalb? Unless it is a Nabi whom Allah has told what is inside the qalb. So they took this incident and they said it is an isolated incident. And in fact, it is an evidence that the default is that anybody who allies with the kuffar automatically becomes a murtad halal ad-dam. And Hatib is the exception that proves the rule for multiple reasons, as they said. Right? So again, you have this interesting controversy also over here. Now, obviously, this difficult controversy, it came to light 10 years ago with the rise of these radical groups around the world. And many of them employed the most harsh reality of this, right? And they ignored the fact that, in fact, the majority of the ummah, including Imam al-Shafi'i explicitly, and majority of the ummah, they took from Hatib that which is apparent. And they said, Hatib clearly committed a sin. No scholar, by the way, said that Hatib didn't commit a sin. Hatib committed a sin, and it is a major sin, but it's not kufr. And therefore, if a person does ally with a force because of a reason of this dunya, because of whatever ta'weel, so this is another point. If a person has a ta'weel, a reinterpretation, then we give that reinterpretation some legitimacy. In their own mind, they have restructured and they've legitimized. We might not forgive them in this world, 
Maybe Hatib should be punished ta'zir. But we recognize that a person who claims to be Muslim shall never be expelled from Islam if as long as they have some weird way of justifying in their own mind. Now again, understand me. That excuse is between him and Allah. We might punish him in this world. But we have to be super careful about expelling people from Islam and Kufr. And one final point we learned from the hadith of Hatib as well. Beautiful point here. And we should apply this in our own daily lives. And it's a hadith as well of the Prophet A person who has done good for his whole life and he commits a mistake should not be treated the same way who, as the person who's done a lifetime of evil and he only has one good deed, for example, right? A person who has participated in every battle, a badri, a person who is the emissary of the Prophet now he falls into a mistake, cannot be treated in the same way that a person whose whole lifestyle is full of evil. And there's a hadith that is very important. It is in Abu Dawood and Muslim Imam Ahmad, authentic hadith, Hassan hadith. Our Prophet said that, that cut some leeway to the people of dignity when they slip up. Except if they do a had of the punishment of Allah. If they steal, if they, that's a had punishment. The hadith says this. This is a hadith. The people of dignity, the people of status, cut them some slack if they slip up. Subhanallah. We look at the past behavior of somebody, and if they mess up one time, the Prophet said, show them extra gentleness because you want to get them back. And we see the implementation of this in the story of Hatib. That the Prophet forgave Hatib and one fine, again, there's so much to say here. Uh, the, 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 the group that says Hatib committed kufr, they say the fact that Umar al-Khattab twice wanted to execute him. The first time the Prophet said Hatib has spoken the truth. And Umar still said, I want to execute him. It's as if Umar ibn Khattab understood, they are saying, Umar ibn Khattab understood that that might be an excuse in the eyes of Allah. It's not an excuse in our eyes. So the fact that he came twice is used as a point of contention by the other group. Bottom line and to summarize, when you really look at how our ulama have justified their positions, you actually learn to respect more opinions. And you see the same evidence can be used by different fuqaha and different scholars for deriving opposite rulings. Therefore, my advice to myself and all of you, try your best to accommodate and be respectful of all the opinions. And even if you disagree with one, understand that there are people that have said this. When the issue involves takfir, when the issue involves expelling people from Islam, my practical advice is always follow the most open-minded opinion. You'd rather keep people in than keep them out. You'd rather allow them in. And especially in this case, we find the great ulama were on the more open-minded and inclusive side and this is the safest thing to do wallahu ta'ala alam inshallah we'll continue next week assalamu alaykum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh wa malaikatahu yusalluna ala nabi ya وسلموا تسليما